welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, we'll deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Spiritual Wanderlust podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch, and today I have a very special treat for you, a blast from my past, my very first theology professor um, from nearly 20 years ago, Dr. Regis Martin is joining us today. Dr. Regis uh, is a professor of theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville, where he's been for over 30 years, and is, has written and spoken all over the place. Um, he has several books out that I encourage you to check out, um, including Garlands of Grace, an anthology of great Christian poetry, The Suffering of Love, Christ's Descent into Hell of Human Helplessness, and many more. And I feel like if, if I have a very... Um, spacious and sprightly spirituality. I, I partially have Dr. Regis Martin to thank for that. Um, it's this kind of, you know, alternative orthodoxy, as it's been called, or um, panentheism or sacramental imagination, this view of reality where everything means something, um, where everything is awash with wonder, it's something that I sometimes find hard to explain um, because it's this whole way of seeing and being. And Regis has a way of helping you see, not just by speaking about these dense theological concepts, but by quoting transcendentalist poets and, you know, reality. I, I appreciated that more than, you know, saints or theologians in our theology class, I came away with a ton of notes full of um, Emily Dickinson and Walker Percy and um, William James and everyone and anyone um, who has written. So anyway, I'm very thankful and excited to have Dr. Regis Martin joining us today. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, you've given me much to atone for. <laughs> Indeed. That kind of impact. Yes, yes. Well, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, I, I went and pulled out, I still have my notes from almost 20 years ago, um, sitting in wow. Theology 101 in Ohio. And I was struck that the very first line that I wrote down in your class, whether you opened it this way, or, um, you know, if it was later on in the class, but the very first line I have written down is the first premise of Christianity is an openness to reality. And that struck me because that's not the kind of Christianity that a lot of our listeners are used to. Um, many of them have experienced a much more cramped version of Christianity, maybe a more fundamentalist version, you know, where reality and the material world are very suspect. So I'm curious how you would describe this openness to reality and like, what does it mean to embrace everything? 
Yeah, I, I wish I could take credit for it, but it's not my sunburst. Uh, I lifted it from uh, Luigi Giussani, uh, mm. who wrote uh, The Religious Sense, uh, which has uh, shaped me ever since. I think it came out uh, in 1997, and uh, I happened to peek into uh, uh, the pages of that book, and in the preface, he lays out the program, and I think you may uh, recognize this. Hmm. Reason is like an eye staring at reality, greedily taking it in, penetrating reality, moving from one thing to another, yet conserving them all in memory. And he goes on to uh, insist that reason is what makes us human. It's the defining theme of, uh, of our lives. This capacity we have, uh, this ability uh, to be open, transparent, uh, receptive, almost in a virginal way as the Blessed Mother was, uh, to receive whatever reality uh, is, is cooking up, baking, this great banquet of, of, of being, of uh, this avidity for being, to be open to everything and to foreclose on nothing. In fact, if you read the Lord's Prayer, as I think, well, we don't read it, we recite it, uh, there is a moment, one of the petitions uh, invites God to give us this day our daily bread. That's the bread of meaning. Give us a huge, rich chunk of reality. And since you are supremely real, we're asking for you. Give us yourself. Uh, let me feast upon your being, your life. You are the supreme reality. And, and elsewhere uh, in Giussani's book, and I, I think this has always been a source of great comfort to me, uh, he quotes the great Austrian philosopher, Wittgenstein, who says that even when you think about being, about meaning, about truth, you might as well call that prayer. You're engaging logos, truth, the truth of that which is, the ground of being. And my students are, are reassured by that because it means when you read, when you study, when you ask questions, you're really engaging in a kind of prayer. Yes. And that's very freeing. I love that. I mean, it yes. Doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't dispense them from other kinds of prayer, like the prayer of worship, thanksgiving, uh, contrition. But what we petition God for more than anything else is the bread of meaning. Mm. That's one thing that blew my mind open. I remember as a freshman is understanding this concept of the logos as this, that which makes reality intelligible and even a sense of security that things are going to make sense somehow, even if my puny brain can't comprehend it all and process it all myself, there's a trust that reality is, is reliable in some way, even if it feels uncertain. And, and if God is the author of reality, then he's not going to disappoint. He won't betray us. He's not going to give us a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. He's mm. going to give us meaning, the bread of life. Now, I, I know in the class that you had with me, uh, you didn't read uh, Tom Howard's book, mm. Chance or the Dance, or maybe you did, uh, or maybe you've read it. It sounds since. familiar. I can't remember if we just read an excerpt, maybe. Yeah, that was, that was, that's the book that I use uh, in the sacraments class. And, mm. and I know that that's where we're going. 
Mm. I mean, that's the, the golden thread that uh, runs through uh, this conversation we're having. What does yes. it mean to cultivate a Catholic sacramental uh, imagination? But in his book, uh, I, this is really the front piece of the book, he quotes uh, a poet uh, whose name I, I had not known before I came across it, Eugene Warren. And it's just a very short lyric. And this is what it says. Is it chance or dance moves the world? Is the world blind and dumb or bloom festal, a vain jest or holy feast? Mm. In other words, when you look out the window, I mean, are you seeing just a random uh, collection, a concatenation of atoms sort of spinning randomly, arbitrarily out of control? Or does the universe have a kind of pattern, an order, a logos, almost a choreography, as if it were a dance, a liturgical dance, uh, you know, the cosmic liturgy? It has a rhythm, it has a pattern, and it is efficient the way things run, but it's also elegant, it's beautiful, it's mm. lovely to look upon. But you have to choose between one or the other, Christ or chaos. I mean, Christ is the Logos, so we either embrace that or uh, we uh, you know, lie down with, with chaos and disorder and, and uh, darkness, you know, a kind of infernal isolation that admits no longer light. You know, there's no hope. Uh, there's no uh, salvation. Hmm. The mystical body or the anthill. Yes. I think those are the two choices. <laughs> and, and those, it sounds so grandiose, but I think that's really how it is. It's you choose something either very cramped, um, again, like this Christianity that I so frequently hear about where it's like, there's not enough space for science or for your body or for women or for, you know, like, very important, you know, fundamental building blocks of reality, or it's this like cosmic, mind-blowingly spacious and kind of wild and even a little daunting <laughs> um, infinity. Yeah, I mean, if, if God is the author of being, then it's going to be rich uh, and, and vibrant and exciting mm -hmm. and dangerous and daunting. You know, in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, we're told repeatedly, Aslan is not a tame lion. Mm -hmm. He's ferocious. He's regal. He's a lion. He's not a koala bear. Yes. He's not an all-sucker. Yeah. He yes. can be pretty fierce. But I he have... loves us. Yes. I was going to say, I have written down, um, again, from, from notes early on, um, and you tell me if I wrote this correctly, that it was Justin Martyr who said, everything beautiful belongs to us. Yes. And I That's love exactly. that. And it's such a, I mean, he's the same one who talked about that Logos Spermaticoi, you know, the like the seeds of the Logos in all things, this, this Christ that existed, you know, the second person of the Trinity, this Logos that existed before Jesus, you know, which I think to me as an 18 year old, I had never really thought much about, you know, it was like Jesus is Jesus. But to have this universal structure, framework of reality became a person is so much bigger and more mind blowing than just, you know, yeah, I, mean, I mean, there was a there, there before there was a there. I mean, on the first page of Genesis, we're told that in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. But antedating that from all eternity, in the beginning was the word. 
Mm. And the word was with God and the word was God. And then in that climactic moment, the word becomes flesh. Mm. That is mind blowing. That yes. the Logos should take on uh, flesh, blood, bone, and become someone like us. Yes, which is why everything beautiful belongs to us, because that logos, the, the truth, goodness, and beauty that we find in all things already is, contains God's presence. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, I mean, so God is, nothing human is alien to God. Uh, everything is mm. hospitable to God. Uh, he loves everything because he made everything. The only thing he's opposed to is sin. But mm. when you think about sin, it doesn't really have any weight. It's love's shadow. It has no ontological mm. status. It's the absence of what should be there. Mm. And I, I find a stunning confirmation of this uh, in the final canto of Dante's Divine Comedy, the Paradiso, the very last uh, uh, section uh, where Dante, looking upon the face of God, penetrating to the very heart of the triune Godhead, is startled to see a human face. He sees the incarnate word. God becomes Dante, every man. I mean, mm. that, that's, that's, that's pretty uh, 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 comforting to know that God is not distant. He's not indifferent. And he's certainly not hostile to the world he made. Why else would he make it? He mm. fell in love with us. You know, God was in love and he couldn't keep the secret, Fulton Sheen tells us. Mm. And the telling of that secret was creation. So we're very special in the sight of God. So this cramped attitude is so foreign uh, to Christianity. It's also foreign to life. You know, life is, I think, naturally, spontaneously, an openness to life. Mm -hmm. You know, you yes. don't wake up in the morning and ask yourself, now, what are the 800 things I can't do today? Yes. <laughs> yes, I love that. That this that the cramped feeling that we have is so foreign not only to christianity but to reality that's right yeah and yeah so christianity doesn't disavow uh, nature i mean this is one of the insights of, of professor howard's book he begins with what he calls the ancient myth and that mm -hmm. was the myth that everything means something everything means everything the modern myth is that nothing means anything that's the triumph of the equivocal imagination so Christianity did not disavow that ancient pagan myth, but instead deepened it, Christianized mm. it, supernaturalized it, you know, on, on the understanding that grace doesn't abolish nature, grace completes it, perfects it, which means nature is already good. Now, it's fallen, fractured, wounded, but it's not evil. Nature is not evil. Mm -hmm. it, it, it just needs a little help. You know, a prosthetic device. Yes, yes. And that's something else that struck me as I was reviewing all of this. Um, just how um, this understanding of Christianity or Catholicism, if you will, is this profound affirmation of the goodness of, of reality, of, of humanity, of God, um, and how distinct that feels from the more popular forms of Christianity that we sometimes hear about today. And I'm curious how that split occurred. How did we end up with the very same religion, or at least the same title of the religion, and one that feels very um, cramped and almost um, defensive in how <laughs> like, it defends its boundaries, you know, against who's in and who's out, or 
um, sure. what feels appropriate versus this spacious and wild kind of Christianity that embraces everything. And I have in my notes, um, you, you said you don't scoop life in with coffee spoons, but gather it oh. in greedy heaps. <laughs> and I love that. Well, it's That was the predicament of J. Alfred Prufrock, who wanted mm. to mentor out his life with coffee spoons. He was neurotic and fearful and ultra fastidious. He didn't experience life. He, he shrank from it, recoiled from it. I, I, I don't know. I mean, before doing an inventory on what went wrong, uh, you have to begin by acknowledging that this attitude you described is profoundly anti-scriptural because the great truth, the metaphysical truth upon which all of sacred scripture opens is the recognition that the world we live in is a created place. And if it's been created and God's the creator, then it's good. It has meaning. If it has meaning, then we can commune with that meaning. I mean, that's the whole point of having a mind and intelligence so mm. that you can make contact with reality. You know, think with the eternal ground, thought, noose, logos. We're able to do that mm -hmm. because we're made in his image. And I mean, that that's pretty liberating. I, I yes, think. yes. And that distinction was also really um, it, the nuance of the and the difference between image and likeness that our image has always yeah. remained right. intact. It's it's our likeness that got a little that's what, banged that's up, what <laughs> you know, like, yeah. and that's, no, that, that's, that's, that's an excellent distinction. The mm -hmm. Imago Dei is there intact. Uh, you may defile the image, but you can't efface it. It will always be there. Even if you take yourself to hell, you go there as an image of God. It's the likeness unto Christ that we have to somehow soldier on to acquire. But with grace, it can be done. Yes. And I like that distinction because there's such a... Um... I don't, I don't, almost like a self-hatred, you know, that I find in some some other strains of um, kind of that Lutheran image of like, I'm just a dunghill covered in snow, <laughs> you know, and that my, I am fundamentally broken, evil, wicked, whatever it is, instead of recognizing like, no, no, we are first and foremost snow. We are right. walking around shining like the sun, as Merton would say, you know, and right. it's just that we need to, um, we can see it's pretty clear that everyone is kind of on a spectrum of where we are in human virtue, whether or not we are um, <laughs> displaying that radiance as as best we can, or if like, well, we got some we got some wounds, we got some brokenness that need to work through. Well, but yeah, there's some work that, that that has to be done. But you're working on something fundamentally good, yes. essentially good, mm. uh, and. and yeah, and I think that that emancipates uh, the mind and the heart. You don't have to be oppressed or feel oppression. Uh, you are beautiful in the sight of God. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, that's what we carry with us into this world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't really know where this mindset came from, this puritanical aversion, uh, this resistance or repugnance uh, for the body, but wherever uh, it, it has come from, and maybe it has a satanic uh, 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 shape to it, but it's wrong. It's yes. misguided. Uh, it's it's uh, a mistake. I mean, why would God make human beings if they were already a mess? I mean, why would he do that? What was he thinking? 
you know, right. let me make them. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Yes. He wanted to create something beautiful and then enter into that beautiful thing he had made. I mean, that's that's the supreme moment, the moment of incarnation. He prepared an entire universe for his coming. You know, okay. there's a beautiful poem. I, I, I doubt that uh, I regaled you with it when you were a freshman, but it's by Joseph Mary Plunkett. Uh, it, it's very brief. It's only about three stanzas and every line rhymes. So it has a lot to commend. It's called, I see his blood upon the rose hmm. and in the stars, the glory of his eyes. His body gleams amid eternal snows. His tears fall from the skies. I see his face in every flower. The thunder and the singing of the birds are but his voice and carven by his power. Rocks are his written words. All pathways by his feet are worn. His strong heart stirs the ever-beating sea. His crown of thorns is twined with every thorn. His cross is every tree. You know, when I think about that poem, it strikes me as if, almost as if God had orchestrated the whole of creation. I mean, from the spheres uh, in the heavens, right down to the acorns uh, and the amoebas, so that he might sort of arrange at this one moment for his entrance. He's coming into the theater of the human condition. There he is on the stage. And all of this is by way of preparation. Everything signifies something else. Everything means everything. We don't live in a flat, boring world, flat as a map. I mean, the world has depths and uh, we need to explore those. I mean, that was the great, that was the great exhortation that I have taken from everything Luigi Giussani ever wrote, that we need to live the real, to plunge deep down uh, into this world that God uh, made, because it will yield its insight, its riches, its joy, its beauty, to the extent we look. You know, open your eyes uh, and look. Yes. And, but a lot of people don't want to look. Or if they do look, they want to see only their sins. Mm. And that's not helpful. Yes. Yes. I I love that quote of Jusani that says, the only condition for being truly and faithfully religious is to live always the real intensely. That's right, yeah. That's so <laughs> freaking good. <laughs> you know, because that's just so, um, again, contrary to what, I don't know, that that almost um, what people think of as like Irish Catholics, you know, the guilt, I'm like constantly living in guilt, Catholic guilt. And I'm like, no, no, I think that was actually Jansenism <laughs> or like Puritanicalism. Yeah, um, yes, 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 some of it, some of which managed to infect uh, Irish Catholicism. And then when it got transported to the new world, that virus was carried. Uh, and it's really a great pity because that's not that's not the Christianity that Christ uh, uh, confected, fashioned, uh, and suffered and died for. That's not the human condition. Right. Why would we want that? <laughs> like, why would that even be worth dying for? You know, something that's so small. It, yeah, I mean, you want to die on that hill. <laughs> then I'm just rotten. 
I'm wretched. Yeah. You know, I, I once uh, knew a priest, uh, he's gone home uh, since then, who would sometimes give me Holy Communion and say, uh, body of Christ, you sinful wretch. Oh. <laughs> it was a joke. He was trying to be funny. <laughs> oh, but I mean, the point is, despite whatever I may think I am, Christ condescends to come to me, to fill me with himself. I mean, that's what I should focus on. Stop thinking about yourself. You're not all that interesting. Your sins are not that interesting. They're not so novel or original. I mean, ask any priest. He's heard them over yes. and over again. So move on. Yes. <laughs> I like that. Um, as you mentioned earlier, one way to... Um, refer to this worldview is this sacramental imagination. And it's something that I am sometimes at pains to try to describe because I spent four years in my undergraduate degree, you know, just immersing myself in this from the various aspects of theology and philosophy and literature and politics and history and all the different aspects, which was a wonderful cornucopia of, of all of that. But I'm curious if you had to describe in a few sentences, how would you, how would you define this sacramental imagination, this worldview that we're talking about? Well, you know, uh, Hopkins gives us a, a, a pretty good clue uh, when he says, grace rides time like a river, which mm. means it moves through time, it penetrates time. It doesn't hover above the surface. Uh, hover above the flux. It enters deep down into the marrow uh, and and penetrates it and communicates the grace of God through the grit of this mm. world. God is not indifferent or hostile to nature. He wants to redeem it. He wants to Christologize it. He wants to make it a setting for glory. So many glints of God's glory are right there strewn about in this world that uh, he made. You know, Eric Gill, he was a wonderful Englishman, a craftsman, uh, a, a critic. He said, Dante speaks to us of God, but you know what? So do the daisies, the mm. dewdrops, and the dung. Everything conspires mm. to speak to us of God. And, and that's really, a, like, you might say, that's the definition of a sacrament. The penny catechism tells us a sacrament is an outward sign. It's got to be something you can see or touch or taste or smell or hear, which communicates an inward reality, an outward sign instituted by Christ, by grace, to communicate himself, to allow us to share in his own life. You know, the mm. bread we, we eat is, in fact, God's own body. The water that somehow is used to baptize a child, that becomes part of the launching pad for what Pope Benedict has called uh, the final mutation in the evolution of the human species. Hmm. When you become a Christian, when you are somehow immersed in Christ, you are inserted into the death and the resurrect resurrection of Christ. You are no longer your own. You belong to him. So what can be wrong with that? Why would that, why would that produce a crabbed, narrow, negative uh, fixation upon yourself, your mm. sins? You need to see everything from the vantage point of Christ. I mean, that was Paul's vision. It is no longer I, 
the Christ who lives and moves in me. Mm. That's the sacramental imagination. It, you, you, it, I mean, sacraments are these wonderful things, these efficacious sacred signs, which somehow bring about the very reality they signify. What, mm. Like you know, making love with your wife, that is somehow a nuptial of, of experience. That's the nuptial meaning of the body. It signifies so much more than simply copulation. Mm -hmm. Or as Eliot puts it, birth, population, death. That's all the brass tacks uh, when you come uh, to the last. Mm -hmm. That's not it. That's a lie. That's uh, really a, a, a deceit. And yes. we have to overcome that. So how would you apply that vision of, of sacraments? Because I'm sure there are plenty of listeners who are familiar with, you know, the seven sacraments of, you know, you got communion or Eucharist and you got baptism or marriage. How does that apply to like, like you mentioned, like to, to a dog or dung or this lamp or my microphone or just human interactions? Like what? Right. I mean, you yeah, you have, you have to be careful because you, you could slip into pantheism in which God collapses into the cosmos. And that, mm -hmm. that would be silly. I mean, that's really yeah. Stupid. So talk you know, to me God about the is, difference there. Okay. Well, well, the, the two extremes which Catholic Christianity avoids are pantheism, in which everything is God, or God is everything, that's theopanism, or the opposite mistake, which is a kind of dialectic of refusal and rejection and denunciation. That was the position that Karl Barth took, representing classical Protestant theology, when he said God's very first word to the world is a word of judgment condemnation. That's not a Catholic word. For Catholics, his first word is approval, approbation, happiness. He takes delight in the world he made. This is good, and I'm going to send you grace so that you can make it even better. But yes. it's not a mistake. I don't make mistakes. I'm, I'm not like Detroit. I don't turn out bad cars. Everything is good. Hmm. The, I, I think it was uh, Calvin and this is sort of the, the great shibboleth of Protestant uh, theology, that it's impossible for the finite to mediate the infinite. And that is simply false. In Catholic Christianity, in the economy of grace, God gave us, Christ created. Finite things, in fact, mediate the infinite. Mm. You know, bread, water, wine, you know, sex ash, oil, words, gestures, color, all of these things can mediate of the infinite. I mean, where else is God going to show himself? If God wants to have a relationship with you, he's got to do it in the finite world. Mm -hmm. He's not going to take you out of the world and say, okay, now you can be religious. Now that you're living like an angel, uh, we can have some intimacy. Mm -hmm. No, he wants you to have this intimacy with him in the body because in a sense you are the body you have it's not something separate or detachable mm -hmm. and i think you know when we die there is a certain loss we want the body back but we'd like to see it transfigured you so get in other words back. we need to be better materialists <laughs> like yeah yeah the real sin is 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 spiritualism it, it's mm -hmm. not materialism yeah, when you when everything gets spiritualized 
in, in fact, can I give you an example? This one of my favorite writers is Walker Percy. Please. Uh, and uh, he has a character by the name of Ellen in one of his novels, The Thanatos Syndrome. And she's got some real hangups. Uh, and here is his description of the principal hangup. Ellen had been an Episcopalian, he tells us, but suddenly she has joined a Pentecostal sect and is now speaking constantly in tongues. Her poor husband doesn't know what to make of it. She is herself a little Holy Spirit hooked up to a lusty body. But in her case, spirit has nothing to do with body. Each goes its own way. Even when she was a Presbyterian and I was a Catholic, this is the protagonist speaking, he's a lapsed Catholic, but even when I was Catholic and she was Presbyterian, I remember she was horrified by the Eucharist, eating the body of Christ. That's pagan and barbaric, she said. What she meant and what horrified her was the mixing up of body and spirit, this Catholic trafficking in bread, wine, oil, salt, water, body, blood, spit, things. What does the Holy Spirit need with things? Body goes, body does body things, spirit does spirit things. Mm. I mean, that's schizophrenic. That's a split, a sundering of mind from body, head from heart, sense from sensibility. That's inhuman. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's unhealthy, you know, people who fixate on one or the other. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not who we are. We are a psychosomatic unity, you know, a unity of mind and body, flesh and spirit. And, and the two are supposed to coexist, you know, in a series of splendid tensions, I think, which make up the human condition. Yes, I like that. And that's a nice way to think of that beautiful middle ground between collapsing everything and saying either everything is material or everything is God. And on the other yeah. hand saying like, well, both exist, but they're totally opposed and can't touch, you know, and that kind of That's schizophrenic, right. yeah. but to have some sort of like the living in the tensions. I, I love how um, Rainer Maria Rilke says, you know, like living the questions like that's, that's what I think this worldview for me has really invited me into is like, yes, there's mystery. Yes, there are tensions. That's that's the game. That's, that's where yeah, the power yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, if, if you think of religion as, as some sort of problem you have to solve, then you're gonna be frustrated forever. It's a mystery that you have to live. In fact, you're invited to live it, to rejoice in the midst of it. It's not something you can solve. You know, God isn't a problem waiting for your clever mind to solve. Yes. And, and you're right when, when you touch on that, that, that business about avoiding the two extremes, the two polarities. I mean, some people want to identify everything with God, the univocal imagination. God is everything or everything is God. But then other people at the other extreme insist on stark opposition. God has nothing to do with the world. He stands in, in rejection of it. There's only enmity between the two. But in the middle, there is the Catholic analogical view, both and. It's mm. not either or. 
I mean, it's sort of like Mary. She's not either a virgin or a mother. She's both. You know, Jesus is not either God or man. He's both. Yes. I'm not either a sinner, you know, sunk in this sinkhole of corruption or this angel like Ellen floating about. Mm-hmm. No, both and. Yes, it's that infuriating paradox of trying to hold the both and together, even when it doesn't entirely, like our logical brains are, you know, kind of short circuit, like, how does this even work? But like you said, it's not a problem to be solved. And I think that's where so many of us go wrong is um, in, in the existential insecurities that we have of just living in liminal spaces, living in these tensions, how does this work? we we grasp for security you know so we want something that and there are plenty of you know forms of religion that provide that kind of security like yep we have nicely packaged neat pat answers for all you know quandaries of mind and soul like an electric blanket that you just throw over yourself so that you never feel the cold yeah Yeah, that that's not human Uh, but imagine if you had your life together you would be impossible to live with You'd be insupportable. I'm a saint. You know, everybody recognize that now. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, people would despise you and I would hope you'd despise yourself. I'm not a saint. I think, you know, sanctity is not something you achieve in the space of a weekend after a life in the spirit seminar. Sanctity is a process. Mm -hmm. And it may take a very long time. In fact, that's why God uh, allows us uh, uh, purgatory because that extends time into eternity for most of us who haven't yet become saints mm-hmm. you know Elliot says who are only undefeated because we have gone on trying we don't mm-hmm. give up mm-hmm. I like that you are only you know, undefeated there is... because you've gone on trying hmm. you know somebody once asked uh, Giussani this was in the middle of a crowd of young people what do you call someone who every day gets up resolving to be a better man, but by the end of the day is broken and defeated, and he's not a better man, but the next day he makes the same resolution. He really means it. He really intends to be a better man, the best version of himself. Yet day after day, he confesses failure. What do you call that person, Father Giussani? Giussani said, you call him a saint. He doesn't give up. He doesn't give up. Mm-hmm. And God doesn't give up on us. I mean, that's comforting. That's inspiring. If he's not going to give up uh, on his creature, how dare the creature give up on itself? Mm, yes. Yes. I, I think it's to think and live and see in this way takes sometimes an entire retooling of, of what we were raised with. And um, I, I, I'm wondering what, what suggestions you would have to live in a way that sees through to the depths of things. You know, there are so many, um, like you keep saying, like everything means everything or everything means something. And I think that's, you know, when I can look around and see like a tree waving in the wind and recognizing like this is an expression of of God's love in some way, this tree doing this lovely dance or, you know, my cat coming to snuggle on my lap or even some of the things that don't make sense, you know, in the world, there's some sort of deeper significance beneath it all. 
um, as if the world is transparent. But it's very easy to um, think that the world is opaque. Is, oh, yeah, I know it is. I, and I think the culture of, of enables us to do so. Uh, mm. I think maybe the beginning uh, is to unplug the smartphone, mm. uh, turn the TV off uh, and live reality, live the real of uh, the world, the reality that God made, not the one we have somehow fabricated. If people, there's no life in cyberspace. I mean, one of the reasons, I mean, this is a Zoom call. I mean, this is sort of cybernetic, but sure. it's, an, it's an amazing substitute facsimile. But I don't know that I could teach a class that mm. way all the time. I need real presence. I mean, the church in her wisdom says, look, you can't go to confession over the phone. You can't receive the Eucharist uh, uh, on television. I mean, that's why the lockdowns, the pandemic uh, uh, were so awful because we were deprived of real presence. Mm. That's because we're in the body. We need the presence of another body. Mm. And to make that easier for us, God himself took mm. on a body. Yes, and I think that is... <laughs> Um, difficult sometimes to do in our, our workaday lives, how many of us do work, you know, in front of screens all day long. Um, but there is something so fiercely alive about living in reality and not spending our entire lives on screens, you know, if we can help it or to the extent that we can help it, I suppose. Um, yeah, I, think, I mean, I've known a lot of people who not just for Lent, but forever have gotten off Facebook. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, it doesn't go anywhere. It's depressing. You know, you're, you're made to compare yourself with all of these other people. And, and how, at the end of the day, does that help you grow in wisdom or mm -hmm. holy? Or yeah. to know as much as we do know about what's happening, uh, 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 you know, with the celebrities, the politicians. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, maybe Will Smith should have slapped that guy. But I don't need to know that. That's not important to me. Sure. Yes. What's important to me are my children, my students, my wife. Yes. And I think that that idea of figuring out like, what is it that leads me to live the real intensely? Because I also know people who, you know, through social media, this is how they've found connection with other people. And, you know, it can be a positive thing. But yeah, when you start going down these like kind of black holes of like, celebrity gossip or you know just all the news that can be so depressing and finding out like what is it that's going to serve me and becoming more fully human i mean jusani says you have to develop a passion for reasonableness because mm. that's what defines us this capacity to think to know uh, you know to pursue to plunge into being and try and you know trace the connections uh, track down uh, uh, the links, the causal links from here all the way back to the beginning and stretching on into infinity. I mean, that's why we were made. That's why God gave us life, so mm. that we might somehow exploit the resources of life, plunge right down to the very bottom. You know, a wonderful uh, theologian, Father William Lynch, uh, in his book, Christ and Apollo, says, the one creation that never needed redeeming was time. The only thing it needed was someone to plunge into it, to explore all the hidden resources of time. And that's exactly what Christ did. He entered into every phase of the human condition. I mean, God became a, a, an embryo, a zygote, a fetus, a child. 
a teenager, an adult. And finally, he becomes a corpse and he falls into, uh, into hell. I mean, every, every step, every aspect, every phase, he marches right to the limit of everything finite and invests each finite moment with an infinite energy and passion. He's living the real. Mm -hmm. you, know, you need to engage yourself with reality. Whatever it is you're doing, do it with passion. Yes. You know, even if it's throwing a Frisbee. <laughs> yes. Or having a conversation. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Because that, that to me is a perhaps modern way of saying like living in God's will, you know, is being able to respond to reality and what it's yeah. giving you. You know, for example, I last weekend, so I live in Oregon and I went for a hike last weekend. We were in Southern Oregon and we had this day on this hike of, I mean, we were hiking along this ridge. Spring is in full bloom. There are flowers everywhere, bees buzzing around the blossoms on this ridge. You could see like snow capped mountains in the distance. We saw a little fawn, you know, along the trail. And then the next day. I felt like awful and like I have some chronic health things. And so I was in bed all day long and I was like, well, you know, but both of those things are reality, you know, yes. both of those things, like both the, the fawn, you know, traipsing across our trail and me having yeah. to be like held up in bed all day long. Right. Both of now, those the, tem are yeah, the, the temptation that you want to resist is to say, uh, this was the punishment, you know, God, really stuck it to me because I had so much fun on day one. So day two has to be a washout. Sure. Well, actually the washout has redemptive possibilities. The promise of, of that day you spent in bed, that's real. It's mm -hmm. not less real uh, than the scene uh, at the mountaintop. Mm -hmm. and, and by the way, Steubenville has never been like that. <laughs> <laughs> What you're describing is just unreal to me. It is. It is. I, I'm fairly new to Oregon, so it's. I get to delight in it all the time. It has yet to become calloused over, which I hope it never does. It's. Um, yeah. It. It makes it so much easier to, to just um, enjoy this kind of worldview. I mean, I like to think of. Um, like the J.R.R. Tolkien's or the C.S. Lewis's or the G.K. Chesterton's or some of those writers who it's like, you can see this like sprightly, I don't know, immersion in reality that they have where it's like behind every wardrobe door there might be a Narnia or you probably just <laughs> missed seeing a fairy behind that tree stump. You know, there's just such an aliveness. And I think yeah. that's what is so attractive um, about yeah. this worldview is that it's not flat or depressing or hopeless, but it's sparkling with life. There's a, a wonderful uh, American poet who died just a few years ago, Richard Wilbur, mm -hmm. who says, I opened the window and all at once, the world was awash with angels. Mm -hmm. I mean, to have that vision, I, I think mm -hmm. is, is pretty, uh, pretty enriching. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, what, what you really need is, I mean, George Berninos uh, describes it when he calls Mary younger than sin. That's the kind of vision we need to have. I mean, look at little children. They're filled with wonderment when they look out the window, when they open their eyes. It's a wonderful world. They never will come to an end of it. They take mm -hmm. innocent delight in being. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think that's the habit of mind we need to acquire. It, yes. it may take longer, but uh, that's the childlike attitude that Jesus urges us to 
to adopt. Yes. Seeing things as they are. Yes. <laughs> and that's what I, I was just thinking of the quote, and I can't remember if it was Hopkins or Wordsworth or which poet it was who was walking in the forest with a friend and they came across some flowers and he was like, on your knees, man, those are daffodils. <laughs> you know, like... oh. <laughs> oh my, that might've been Wordsworth. Yes, just yeah. such well, a- did, did, you, did you want me to read the Hopkins poem? Please do, yes. I, I think we might, we might almost be out of time. We are almost out of time. We've been talking about so many things. I, for those of you listening, I asked Regis to share um, if you'd be willing to read this um, Hopkins poem, which I'm pretty sure I discovered for the first time or heard for the first time in his class. And I, anytime I hear this poem quoted, I, I hear Regis's wonderful voice oh, okay. in my head. And so it's such a lovely um, poetic expression of all this that we've been talking about, the sacramental imagination, the spacious, sprightly way of, of living the real. No, I'm, I'm happy to do so. Of God's grandeur. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. And all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh morning at the brown brink eastward springs because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with awe bright wings. That's gorgeous poetry. It I, is I, beautiful. Yeah. The dearest freshness, deep down things. Yeah, that's what we're after. Yes. You know, that's what holds the universe together. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Regis, this has been such a joy <laughs> being able to uh, just take a little frolic about in this spacious wilderness, this wild um, but beautiful and alive world. Um, it's... Well, it's been my pleasure and a great honor, and I'm so happy that we reconnected after 20 years. Indeed, I know. It's amazing how time flies. So thank you for sharing with me this, this worldview and also with all of our listeners um, who are joining sure. us today. Happy to do so. God bless you, Kelly. Uh, thank take you. care. Thank Thanks you again. as well. Bye. Bye-bye.